Hello and welcome to Rearview, the show where we get to meet fascinating people from the motoring universe, learning how they got to where they are today. I'm Andrew and this is episode 12. I'm delighted to say hello and welcome to my guest Ian Seabrook. Would you be so kind as to let everybody know how you are connected to the motoring world, please, Ian? Good morning. Well, currently I'm a motoring, right, well, freelance motoring writer and editor. So I edit retro Japanese and classic Jaguar magazines. Um, and I also run my own blog, which is Hubnut, um, where I just have a slightly offbeat look at the world of motoring. Yes, uh, we will delve further into that offbeat world of motoring. Don't you worry. <laughs> Excellent. Um, I'd like to start, though, with trying to work out or understand when you first got interested in cars and uh, if anybody helped that along. Well, I, I started very young, um, so f- way beyond my earliest memories, but uh, apparently you know, I would literally gawp at cars uh, as a child walking down pavements. And um, I, I can't really work out how that all began. The, obviously the beauty of cars is you can look out of pretty much most windows and there will be cars to look at mm. um, but th- there's just something about them and then I had relatives who would give me brochures and books and so I, I was from the age of about 10 I, I could be lost for hours in reference books which is why my head is full of useless facts <laughs> they're only useless if you don't use them that's true yeah it has come in very useful in, in the more recent years yeah <laughs> um so did, when you were going through school were you um looking at doing something motoring related as a as a career or anything like that um well it, my, my life took a, a bit of a wrong step when um i, I blame land rover for this I, I have my school work experience at land rover when as a 15 year old at load lane and I mean, you can imagine to a, a car mad child, it was just the best week ever. Yeah. And I was I was with the vehicle validation team, which is basically vehicle testing. So we were going up to Gaydon around the high speed test track. We were going to Eastner Castle and driving cars around the off road course there. So it was just amazing. And that kind of derailed me from a sensible career path, unfortunately. And to, to get into that world, which I thought was the best thing ever, I needed to head into engineering. And that's when things went a bit wrong. When I got to college and realised that engineering involves numbers. And while I'm quite good with words, I'm utterly hopeless with numbers. So, <laughs> uh, I, so, so what did I, you do I, there? Well, um, it was a BTEC National Diploma at Solihull College in Engineering and Business Studies. And the more I studied, the more I just realised I was just way out of my depth. Um, and I, I then bounced through lots of dead-end jobs until eventually in 2007, I managed to get a job on Classic Car Weekly um, as the features writer, mm-hmm. which has then set me up for everything that has followed subsequently. But it, it was a long time coming. It was a long time before I actually got into doing work that was actually what I wanted to do in the first place, really. But um, I presume during all that time, the, the cars would still... Um, I don't know if obsession is a bit of a harsh word, but that sort of no, thing... I'd describe it as entirely accurate, yeah. <laughs> the, the amount of time I spent as a 16-year-old trying to plan what my first car would be... Um, you know, well, I, it's I, an important point... step. You've got to get these things right. Yeah, yeah, and it ended up. Uh, I ended up with a battered old um, Mark II 
Fiesta that my parents bought for me, which wasn't the best car in the world, but then I treated it terribly, so that's probably for the best in the end. <laughs> yeah, get get the get the bad behaviour out of the way and then move on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, that, that poor little car got utterly destroyed by me being a 17-year-old. Although I did learn a lot about car control, drifting it around car parks in the ice. <laughs> so it had its uses, but... <laughs> Yes, I, I replaced the Fiesta with my first Citroen 2CV in 1996, and yeah, I haven't really looked back from 2CVs uh, since that point. So when you were when you started at um, a classic car, uh, classic car weekly, wasn't it? You said yes. Yeah. Um, what were the sort of things that you were asked to do um, as, as a features li- writer? Sorry. Uh, funnily enough, it was writing features. But what, what I loved about it was, uh, you know, we'd obviously have meetings where we'd discuss what we wanted to cover. So you could mm. put in and say, well, I, I want to write about this. And um, I, I was working with um, Richard Gurn, Keith Adams at the time. And very, very supportive people helped me try and find my writing style. And I, I soon discovered that I love doing deep research pieces. Mm-hmm. So lock me away with some books and tell me to write a feature and I am the happiest man in the land. It's not all about, oh, I'll get to drive these lovely cars and that's wonderful. I mean, obviously that's a very enjoyable part of the job, but sometimes I think I'm never happier than when I've got a keyboard and a blank page in front of me. And and did you do you think you found your writing style quickly? Was that easy for you to, to do? Yes. Um, I, I mean, t- to be honest, I almost feel guilty at how easy I find writing. I... I don't really seem to give it any conscious thought. It's just, right, I know what's got to be delivered. My fingers start whirring away, and, and away we go. I find mm-hmm. writing very intuitive. No, because I'm, I'm always in admiration of, of people who write, because uh, I, I struggle with that side of things. Some may say I struggle with the podcast side of things and speaking, but mm. um, <laughs> I definitely struggle with the writing side uh, and agonise over how I put the words down and does it flow, yeah. does it make sense, does it actually tell a decent story and things like that. So I, I'm always in admiration and always intrigued to know how people get to a point where they feel not necessarily happy but comfortable with. Yeah, I, I think, again, it stems from that childhood reading magazines. My aunt always had old practical classics magazines kicking around and classic and sports car. And I, I guess by osmosis, I just kind of absorbed the style. Uh, so I, I learned what I loved about the features. Mm. And I, I guess I try and replicate that, which probably means I'm writing slightly out of style for the era we're now in. But uh, a, a lot of magazines are actual going, facts and content yeah uh, too, too many magazines are trying to compete with the internet by going really lightweight and lots of big pictures and that, I, I hope people who've read retro Japanese and classic Jaguar realise that's not how I do magazines I try to do it old school lots of information stuff hopefully you don't know that is kind of the point well yeah I mean because that is that, that brings up an interesting point um, I am hoping to speak to a few people who work on actual uh, print magazines, uh, some of the more mainstream ones, because mm-hmm. to produce a magazine in the internet age, on the one hand, seems like a recipe for insanity. Mm. Uh, and on the other hand is, uh, if I'm going to be slightly less inflammatory, is <laughs> um, it seems such a tightrope to walk 
particularly if you are mainstream. I mean, I think it's a bit easier if you're if you've got a niche like you know, the ones that you uh, edit. Mm, yes, um, because there there is a that is a specific audience that will hunt that out. Mm. Um, but if you're doing a more mainstream, is is the balance between producing good content that is informative and accurate and uh, helpful against mm -hmm. advertising and getting more people to buy the magazine and read it, particularly as you're competing, as you just said, then competing with the internet. I mean, the, there's so much out there that you can get without paying. Yeah. yeah. It, 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 it's not easy at all. Yeah. yeah it certainly remains one of the bigger challenges out there. Yeah. And I don't think anybody solved the properly solved the being paid to produce content problem. No, no, that, that is always going to be a challenge. You know, my, my YouTube channel brings in negligible income. My blog brings in pretty much none at all. So I, I'm, I'm also guilty of putting stuff out there that is effectively unpaid for. Yeah, I mean, we, we are ourselves um, uh, on the Motoring Podcast, although that we're, we're looking at um, creating income for that. But um, it, it's, it also keeps you neutral, I think, as well. Mm, yeah, and I, 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 I personally think that's very important. I, I want people to trust my viewpoint as a neutral viewpoint, mm. and and that that's that's uh, a balance that I I'm not sure is always well uh, well maintained in in no. some magazines. It doesn't it doesn't appear to be anyway. Mm. I, sorry, I'm digressing. That I am digressing. Yes. So, um, what did you do after? You left Classic Car Weekly. Well, sorry, how long were you there for? I was at Classic Car Weekly for about three and a half years. Um, mm -hmm. So it it was licensed out to Kelsey Media, or what was Kelsey Publishing at the time. So I started working for Kelsey. But Kelsey managed to build the title up, so it was doing really well again after some years in the doldrums. At which point, Bauer Media, who were licensing the title out, decided, well, maybe we'll bring it back in-house. Mm. So I then moved to Bauer Media, which is the home of Practical Classics, Classic Cars, and um, several other titles. And um, that, that, that was certainly a very interesting experience as well, to, to go from Kelsey, which is still, it still feels very much like a little family firm, mm. to the massive world of Bauer Media. That was definitely an eye-opener. Sadly, I didn't seem to do all that well in the corporate environment. <laughs> It's my own fault. I'm just a man of principle, and um, I had rather too many arguments with management about how I thought the title should go. Mm. And so, what, so what, what did you what, move on to then after um, parting ways? I think probably is the way to put it. Um, well, it, it was all a bit of a big lifestyle change. So my wife quit her job. I quit my job. I decided to try doing freelance, what I'd already been doing. Mm -hmm. uh, then we moved to Wales for a more idyllic lifestyle. And six years on now, I think it's largely been a successful move. Yeah, uh, the, the uh, pictures you do tweet out uh, of your surrounding countryside do look appalling, and it look, seems to be a dreadful place to live. Oh, um, yeah. I'm not mean, jealous in any way Gorgeous at views all. everywhere. It gets tiring, all those gorgeous views, to be honest. Yeah, it must. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I look out the window and go, you've got to appreciate that. Don't take that for granted because yes. most people do not look out of their office window and see that view. No, quite. <laughs> and it's, it's not always been easy being freelance because it is, you know magazines are struggling a little. They're, they're, 
they're not doing half as badly as a lot of people expected. You know, the arrival of the internet was meant to be the death knell for magazines. It hasn't been quite, but it has made things a bit tougher, a bit harder. I think it's it, uh, well. It appears to be from this side of the internet uh, that magazines just have to think of a, a different way of doing it. Yes, and, and and adapting to that. And the internet isn't going to go away. Magazines mm-hmm. won't completely go away either. It's how yeah. the two get together. I think, and I think it's how uh, magazines really have an online presence, which may, which is the a bit of a key thing for them. Yeah, the online presence. I mean, all the publishers are struggling with what to do with the internet. They don't really get it, I don't think. And, um, I mean, that's understandable. It's, it's, it's a completely different world. So when it comes to advertising on a website, you're much more likely to get bigger players coming in, I think. Whereas the magazines, if you're a specialist in a particular car, I think you'll find a magazine is a better place to advertise than the internet, perhaps. Mm. So... I think that's probably why Kelsey is doing so well. Kelsey always likes to hunt down the niches and you always run the chance then of finding smaller companies who are like, oh, yeah, I'll definitely advertise because you're going straight to my readers. Yeah, yeah, I've got a captive audience. Whereas, yeah, some of these bigger websites, they're not necessarily interested in the small chap who's tinkering in a garage. They want the, the big multinational companies. Yeah. to be advertising, because that's where the money is. Yeah, because it also depends on them working out what it is they are. And, you know, are they mm. an entertainment or are they uh, a consumer Quite. Uh, publication? Mm. And I, I think there's a few that are wrestling with that. Uh, mm, I think, I think there's, there's, a, there's a couple out there that look like they've decided and they've put their hats in whichever, whichever stand they want them in. Um, but I think there's a few there that are still struggling to work out exactly what they are. And... Uh, it, it 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 just doesn't seem easy. It seems very very stressful. Yes, <laughs> looking yeah. from the outside. Um, but I think the internet has shown that if you do have uh, that niches can be a good way to go. Yes, yeah, because it, the internet so. allows these niches to be explored. I think. Mm. Yeah, it's um, it's it's. Interesting to see people like Motor Trend, for instance, seem to have gone down the paid-for content route, mm. and that seems to be working for them. But that's a very difficult thing to replicate because, you know, I've got a friend who does produce videos, and he's looked at an episode of Roadkill and says, yeah, that's huge expense. You're talking probably thousands of dollars to put together one episode. Mm. So it makes it very difficult to try and replicate that just on a me mucking about with my phone sort of a, a level. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and that's, I mean, because that's something that uh, we've looked at. I mean, we've we've put a few, well, Alan, to be honest, is the one who does all the videos. I'm, I'm not, uh, I haven't tried to, uh, well, I have tried to do videos, but it was absolutely appalling. So I, that's <laughs> never, never seen the light of day and has been deleted, so it will never see the light of day. Um, yeah. So again, I'm in admiration for the fact that you uh, will stick a, stick a camera facing you and you will talk and you produce something that is good to watch and is interesting and uh, is understandable and is in things like focus and you can hear it and things like that. Oh, yeah, <laughs> Little yeah, you, things you, you that make a difference in a video. The, yeah, you don't see what ends up on the cutting room floor. Uh, <laughs> like the, M, the MG3 test I've done this week. 
Um, I had an in-car mount as I drove the car all the way up to Newcastle, so I did 800 miles in it. I was trying to record as I went, which yeah. A, proved difficult because I found most of my driving was done in the dark, so I couldn't actually shoot any footage at all. And then the bits <laughs> I have shot, um, the camera mount was vibrating. Oh. So the camera's shaking around, everything's out of focus, it sounds awful. So I had to bin all that, and on Sunday, head out with a mobile and frantically record a fresh video, which is the one that's now up on YouTube. So it doesn't always go well. Yeah. But um, but talking of, of the videos, I think there is a way that the people who don't have the production teams or the extra support or a dedicated camera person can do. You can look at specific uh, channels and see which shots you like, and there are ways to replicate those. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I must concede, lately I've got a bit lazy and I have just been talking to the camera in the car and people are saying, well, you're not actually showing the car itself. So with the MG one, I'm at, I went back to my usual kind of walk around um, way of doing it, which is quite mm. difficult because I have to use a different camera. It was a windy day. I was having to use a dishcloth to break up the wind noise so you could actually hear me. Yeah. Um, it must have looked ridiculous to anyone who drove past. <laughs> But, yeah, I mean, that's the great thing about YouTube is you get very honest feedback. And um, the only way to survive is to respond to that feedback and try and give people what they're asking for. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Well, you, you do um, – I, I do uh, watch your videos and I do enjoy them, so I think you're doing something right. Oh, thank um, you. I mean, again, um, I think it's just osmosis. I mean, people have likened me to old Top Gear, and that's because as a child I obsessed about Top Gear. Mm. Yeah, I'd be querying. I remember when the XJ40 came out, William Woolard tested it, and I remember him complaining about the single wiper. So when did that car came out? That came out in about 86, I think, so I would have been eight years old at the time. And I remember sitting in a shop with my mother and an XJ40 pulled up outside and the bloke got out and ran inside. And I said, ooh, has he stopped because his single wiper's not clearing the windscreen sufficiently? <laughs> my poor mother was just like, I don't think so. So, yeah, you, you just absorb because I obsessed about this stuff. Yeah. Um, I guess I just absorbed the style of doing it. And that's what I try and do because I, I used to like those programs very much. Absolutely. Well, there's, no, there's nothing wrong with them at all. Um, it's... In in today's television and certain areas of the internet, uh, a lot of people prefer the smoking tires and sidewaysness. But I think there's mm-hmm. plenty of room for people who also enjoy uh, a more old-fashioned. I think is the way it is. Old-fashioned yeah. video, so. an old-fashioned film and review. So um, I, it, you know, on the one hand, the internet's makes it hard but on the other hand it's it's great for those of us who are looking for stuff yeah yeah i I just wish i could do more videos but i mean some of them it literally has been i've had the car for 10 minutes and i've thrown the phone into it and i'm trying to give my impressions i'm driving along in it but the electric beetle was one like that um (laughs) I, i was primarily shooting the car for a magazine feature and it's going to be published next month um, so the video was kind of it had to play second fiddle it wasn't the most important aspect about that day mm. so it meant I got one shot of doing I've got the chap sitting next to me as well so I'm having to do my piece to camera with someone sitting right next to me which I'd never done before yeah let's not uh, make I, you feel awkward at all indeed um, <laughs> but, but I think it ended up coming out quite well in the end but 
yeah, they're not always filmed in the best of circumstances. Yeah. Um, so when did you start Hubnut? Uh, well, Hubnut was originally Classic Hub, um, which has been through a few phases over the past probably five years. So okay. th- there's always been a blog. Uh, at one time, I tried going all social media with it and um, used a website called Ning to try and build up um, a bigger project, but th- that acquired costs and I wasn't covering the costs, so that didn't last all that long in the end. Hmm. And and then b- because I've been getting more and more into electric cars, I thought, well, Classic Hub doesn't really reflect my wider knowledge. You know, most of my work has been done in the classic media, but I, I can now focus on whatever I like. So it was rebranded to Hubnut last year, I think, possibly the year before. Okay. And um, how much of your time does Hubnut take up? Does it fit in around everything else, or do you dedicate a portion of the of time to it? Oh, it, it's very much the weak link, really, because obviously paid work has to come first. So yep. with the magazine editing, that's very intense, usually for about a fortnight getting each magazine out. And it, it does mean that the blog goes a bit quiet and video production goes on the back burner because you have to focus on the day job. Mm. So, yeah, it, it fits in where it can. Well, you still got out an awful lot of stuff considering it's fitting in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sometimes I'm quite impressed myself. But, yeah, I mean, I had to spend most of Sunday doing the MG video. So that, that ate up an entire day. But thankfully mm. I had nothing else planned. Apart, apart from the fact I'm meant to be putting my 2CV back together, of course, which I know you've been discussing uh, on the motoring podcast. Yes, we have. We have been following it, avidly following it. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Okay, you've you've mm. mentioned your first car and i'd like to go mm-hmm. through your car history then and you've mentioned your second car so you started yeah. off with a how, how mark... long have you got <laughs> <laughs> so you started off with a mark ii fiesta then you moved to your yeah. first 2cv yes how long did you have the 2cv for uh i had that 2cv about six months um which was starting to set the scene for my future life stupidly um i scrapped it because it had a little bit of rot in the rear C posts and okay. I think I'd been quoted something like 150 quid to sort it out so what I actually did was bought a better 2CV with a rotten chassis and built a bitzer out of the two of them okay so, so so my second 2CV had major elements of my first 2CV in it and then that 2CV was replaced by my first Diane which ended up with the engine out of my first 2CV in it so that first 2CV it did keep an awful lot of cars on the road <laughs> But then sacrificed things, itself. things got very, very silly indeed. Um, when you bear in mind, I got my first 2CV in 1996, and I got my current 2CV in the year 2000, and that was my 12th car, I believe, by that point. Wow. So, chopping and changing all over the place. So, did, so, so um, right, so you're obviously going through cars quickly. Yes. Um, yeah, they they, uh, I just got bored with them, so it'd be like, no, bored of that. I'll get something else. There's so many interesting cars out there. I want, to, I want another one now, please. <laughs> yes, but I, I was just doing it with two CVs. <laughs> that was a silly thing. I, I had about eight two CVs in the space of two years. So we're not, we're not. It's not as though you were trying all the marks or brands. <laughs> just, no, 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 I'm just going to try all the, the two CVs there are. In, yeah, after 
two years of mucking about with two CVs. I got my first PX. Mm-hmm. And I remember it was a 1.9 diesel. And um, despite not having a turbo, my friends were still amazed by it because it was the first car I owned that actually accelerated. Which I thought, <laughs> I thought that was a bit unfair of them. <laughs> and then what did a year you think later, of the BX? Doing, uh, the, the, the BX I really liked. I mean, mm-hmm. it was a bit boring, sensible for a 19 year old. But, um, you know, with, with the hydro pneumatic suspension. Uh, it was, yeah, it, it appealed to the engineer in me, the, the frustrated engineer who can't do maths. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, I had one, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed mine. Um, it, it's one of those, it, I I presume you have this, there's a couple of cars you regret passing on. Um, yeah. But if yeah. we hadn't passed on, then we wouldn't have explored the others we've explored. So it's sort of part of me Indeed. does regret, but then part of me goes, well, but it meant I could. I could own a uh, 827 Vitesse and have the most hated car I've ever owned. Um, <laughs> so... I've long wanted one of those, thanks to Tony Pond. <laughs> I've not uh, I, I think I, I had a, a dog. I think I did. Uh-huh. Um, uh, it, it, I, no, I don't want... I'll have nightmares and be all sad if I go on about that. But yeah. that, So what did you true. get after the BX? Oh, well, the, B, the BX, this proves just how stupid I was back then. Um, I chopped that in for a Deu Matiz. Okay. A brand new Deu Matiz. Right. Which was poss- possibly not my brightest move ever. It was a lovely <laughs> little car, but obviously um, it cost a fortune. Yeah. So how long did you keep that for? Uh, an entire 18 months. Wow. That's, that's, yeah. that's almost true love. <laughs> yeah. In your yeah, car yeah. history. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it was a very long time. And um, I did something even more stupid then because I turned 21 and I replaced it with a Subaru Impreza Sport. Why is that stupid? Um, because I was young and foolish and crashed it. Oh, okay. okay. Within the first week, I think. Oh, no. Yes, I, I discovered lift-off oversteer, which is not something that tends to uh, affect two CVs all that much. Really? 20 month break horsepower. You do surprise me. Yeah. Um, so, d- did it get repaired or? It got, it got repaired and then I tra- traded it in for a Peugeot 306 D Turbo, which is probably one of the best cars I've ever owned. Okay. And how long did you keep that for? Uh, I, think, I think that made it over two years. So, you're getting very sensible fun. now, and this is. You're keeping cars for days at a time. Oh, now. This, this is this is almost uncharacteristic. Plenty. Yeah, there's plenty coming and going. Uh, you know, there's been um, a couple of Dianes and a Citroen Acadian van, um, which I once took round a roundabout and apparently managed to lift the inside wheel completely off the ground because I had all my friends and their camping gear in it. <laughs> so there's still plenty of cars coming and going, but by, by this stage, I'd got the two CV the one I own now. And for some reason, that is the one that got the claws in. Okay. And I'm still not, I'm still not really sure why, but 16 years later, I still own it. So there you go. And one, uh, no, you've, you've, you've done a, it's not restoration, is it? You, you did work on it before, didn't you? This is the second. Yeah. It, it, uh, well, it, it's a bit complicated. The body was first restored in 2002 so there you go. I'd already managed to own it two years, and I still owned it. 
<laughs> and um, yeah, it, it was quite badly rotten then. So the body was sent off and refurbished, but not all the wings and the bonnet and everything, because I just didn't have the money at the time because I was blowing it on other useless cars. Um, and then in 2005 to 2006, it came off the road again. And this time it was a full makeover and everything was done up beautifully. Mm-hmm. And since that point, I was just watching it rust away again. Ah. So w- with this current restoration, I'm trying to tread the tricky path of getting it solid, but not turning it into showroom condition. Okay. So people may be disappointed when they see it in the flesh because it will not be an immaculate car. But it's my daily driver. I do not want it to be immaculate. I want it to be solid. That's the most important thing. And used. That's that's yes. That's something I like to see uh, in, yeah, in cars um, is they're being used. Yeah, there's one year looking at the MOT history where I clocked up 15,000 miles in the year, which given it's obviously shared mileage with other cars that I owned at the time, mm. is pretty remarkable. Whereas in more recent years, it's been doing under 3,000. And I'm like, well, this isn't right. Mm. especially as I've been taking the mileage down on it to try and protect it, and it's still rusted away, so I might as well be driving it. <laughs> Quite. Might as well enjoy it. <laughs> Indeed. Okay, so um, during the time of the 2CV ownership, you've obviously <laughs> had other cars. What, what, did you, what was the next car you got after um, the current 2CV? Um, oh, I'm struggling to remember from that year. Um, it, it, I've owned over sixty vehicles now, so trying to keep tabs on them. Sixty all. vehicles? That's yeah, impressive. It, it could well, it could well be into seventy. There's dealerships that haven't had that many, Ian. I know. So, so try, <laughs> trying to keep tabs is quite difficult. I know when I turned twenty-five, I celebrated by buying a Rover P6 V8 Series One in tobacco leaf, which was a <laughs> fabulous car. But sadly, sadly, the trader saw me coming. This was before I was a motoring writer. And um, I made a mistake of telling him what my budget was. And he goes, oh, well, I could come down to that on this one. And the sills were completely rotten on it. Mm. Sadly, the Rover P6 is a car which hides its rot well. Oh, dear. So you can have a lovely shiny car, which is rotten as a pair underneath. And it wasn't rotten as a pair, but I did end up blowing what I'd paid for it on getting it repaired again. So Mm. that, that, that was an interesting lesson. But what a car that was. It's still one of... The cars would. The engineering is just beautiful on it. Even though I am a failed engineer, I hold cars with good engineering in high regard. So Citroëns, Lancias, and Rovers of that era, where you really can feel the effort that's gone into making controls feel the way they do. So it was the with that Rover. Then it was the whole the whole package that felt so special for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a lovely car to drive. And you, you could drive it like a modern car. You could chuck it around. You could blast down motorways in it. And, um, yeah, the only downside was 20 to the gallon. Details. Mere, mere details. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, stupidly, I, I sold that and replaced it with an Isuzu Trooper Mark One. Okay. probably the worst car I've ever owned. Really? It was rubbish on the road. It was rubbish off the road. Uh, it was oh. oh terrible. How disappointing. Yes. So so that didn't last long then? No, no, that one didn't last long. I'm struggling to remember what I replaced that with. I think it was an Audi 100, um, 1987. My introduction to the five-pot warble. <laughs> 
Well, it's one of your rare forays away from French cars as well so far. It is, yeah. I mean, to be fair, there haven't been many forays. I've owned a few British cars, but not many German ones. No, I think the Audi was the proof of why I don't tend to dabble with German cars. It's that typical efficient, but no character. There's just not enough interesting, apart from that engine noise. Okay. It it just it competently went round and did its job. Yes. Okay, right. I get that. I get that. So um, after the Audi, what, you've obviously gone for something completely mad and crazy, I'm presuming, because you wanted excitement back in your life. Yeah, I have a feeling I replaced it with a Maestro 1.3. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a very logical time in my life. We like cars. We're not logical people. No. This this, this was about the time I'd um, finally convinced um, the lady who was now my wife to get rid of her battered Citroen AX where the headlamps fell out. She did an emergency stop <laughs> and um, replaced it with a Rover 400 of the bubble shape. Oh, it was right. a lovely car, but she didn't like it at all because she has an extreme hatred of convenience features. She doesn't like power steering or servo brakes or central locking, and it had all those things. So that was replaced with a Mini, which we owned for several years, and that became her much-loved daily. In fact, she even got good at adjusting the points gap because it would close up all the time. Okay. <laughs> right, so then you've... Uh, what, what was next then? If you can remember, um, well, the the Rover went and was replaced with a Mini. The Maestro went. Oh, what did I replace the Maestro with? I'm re- really strict. Uh, there was a brown Vanden Plaster Allegro involved at some point, but I think I got given free because I, I briefly set myself up doing um, vehicle delivery. All right. So I bought myself an LDV 400 and was trying to work as a delivery driver, which yeah. is possibly the most stressful job I've ever undertaken in my life. <laughs> and um, it, it was after a particularly bad day where everything that could go wrong had gone wrong. I'd been stuck on the M2 because of a gas leak at the services, and I just shut everything down. I was stuck there for hours. So I'm driving home at about 1 o'clock in the morning. Uh, and this really isn't what I want to be doing. So when... Um, Kelsey Media phoned me the next day and said, do you want to be our features writer? I, I kind of leapt at the chance. I'd already been interviewed for the news editor, but they decided I wasn't quite right for that job. Mm. So I, I'd had to cope with the disappointment of that, you know, the excitement of going to the publisher, having the interview and not getting the job. But then a couple of months later, they said, we need a features writer. Do you want it? And I wasn't really going to say no at that point. Yes, please. After yesterday. <laughs> yes. To save your memory then. If we move uh, closer to now, because you have, in the last 12 months, gone through a lot of vehicles. An awful lot, yes. Really? Yes. Can, can you run through for the listeners who, don't, uh, who haven't um, been on Hubnut yet, but there will be a link in the show notes to your, to your site and stuff. Could you run through what you've had in the last 12 months? Oh, last 12 months, blimey. Where were we a year ago? Um, well, I had the Citroen XM a year ago, which is mm-hmm. another car that managed to last a good 18 months on the fleet. Fantastic car, let down only by a horrible clutch and typical PSA nasty gear change. Um, but th- th- that was a great car. And everyone said, don't buy a cheap XM, it'll be a complete nightmare. And 
it was absolutely superb for about 18,000 miles, I think I did in it. And it rarely put a foot wrong. So I had the XM. Um, my wife has got a Perodua Nipper, uh, which is a Dat- Daihatsu Mira cast off from Malaysia. And it's the replacement for the Mini, really, because it's got no equipment at all other than a steering wheel and some doors. Sorry, it's a cat bouncing in through the cat's lap. <laughs> Um, That's all right. what, else, what else do we have a year ago? The 2CV was off the road a year ago um, because the corrosion had got too bad. Um, I'll, I'll come back to the 2CV projects in a bit. And it was about this time of year. In fact, I think it was a year ago yesterday that I got given a free Volvo in London. Um, and the collection mission for that, you should check out the video on my YouTube channel. It got ridiculous. I had to catch a bus down to Haverford West pick up a Volvo for a friend of mine and drive it to London, where I then picked up my own Volvo and tried driving my own Volvo back, but the alternator failed. So then I had to frantically try and find um, an alternator, fit it, and then drive home in my free car, which was an absolutely terrible machine. But it still, it was an adventure. It's like the British roadkill. It isn't quite so glamorous. Yes, quite. I mean, I remember reading about that. And didn't you further complicate things by leaving your wallet on the bus yes yes i did just to yes, make things yes. a little bit harder than they yes, really which became needed a problem to be when, when volvo number one started flashing the oil light at me i was like i haven't got any money to um buy oil so i was just trying to limp it to london and not destroy the engine in this car that wasn't even mine because i was collecting it for someone else uh, yes, the things we do. Quite. Okay, so um, it sounds like you didn't have the Volvo for long then. No, no, it, uh, that was emphatically not a keeper. I managed to get rid of that before Christmas. And um, I'm, I'm now trying to recall what I owned after that. Was that your... Did you get your RAV then? No, the RAV didn't come till May. Um, I'm still not sure why I bought the RAV. It seemed like a good idea at the time. And to be honest, it's been a fine and dandy little tow car, which has surprised me no end. Given that the wheelbase is actually shorter than the wheelbase of the Perugia Nipper. Oh, right. Okay. So it, is, it is short. It is ridiculously short. So well, the, it's, the, it's, the RAV it's, a, it's a track car if you look at Andrew Brady. Indeed, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. I haven't taken mine on a track yet. I've taken it green laning, for which it's not ideal. But, yeah, I would like to take it on a track because it does handle well. Okay. Yeah, so I think it was probably just the... Oh, there was the Diane, wasn't there? Yes. I can't remember exactly when the Diane came, but that was because I was getting frustrated at not having the 2CV on the road. So I bought the Diane because I thought it was more realistic to get that on the road after it had languished for a decade in a Welsh field than to restore my own poor 2CV. That was in a garage. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the Diane was fun, but um, then we sort of moved forward to where the project for the 2CV is actually starting to gain ground. And it was like, well, the Diane's got to go. It's a distraction. It's taken up my garage. Um, I'll need to sort it out. So, yeah, I spent last winter rebuilding the engine on the Diane, which is the first time I'd taken a 2CV engine completely apart. And um, it, it was inspiring, really, because there I was thinking I was a failed engineer. But two CVs are so easy to work on, but I can apparently dismantle an engine and put it back together. And it work. Yes. Yeah, so... Perfect, perfect. So then, um, so when did you get the Honda? 
the Honda joined the fleet only in September this year, but I've already done over 2,000 miles in it. Uh, and you, was it the southwest you went for that? Yeah, that, that was down in Cornwall. And before that, there was the Mitsubishi Colt, which again was in London, which I bought. Um, actually, no, I can't even justify it in any way, shape or form. I was tasked with organising a display of retro Japanese cars at the Fast Car Festival at Donington Park. So for some reason, I bought a 1.5-litre Mitsubishi Colt automatic and took that to the Fast Car Festival. It's an obvious choice. Obviously, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah, so I've got a nice shot somewhere of it parked up next to an Aston Martin Vulcan, but sadly no one's looking at the Colt for some reason. <laughs> So what we what we can learn from your car history is a um, there's probably not going to be enough cars in the world for you. No, that's very true. Uh, and b <laughs> um, they have to be very special to last more than a few months. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I I think only two or three cars have made it over two years. So what? What are you looking for in a car then? If you're if you're looking if you're going to go out and I mean you possibly are already thinking of a new purchase. What do you do? You usually have a set of criteria um, that you work off, or does it just depend on uh, which uh, where the moon is in the sky? I mean, have you got? I've been trying for many years to work out what it is that makes me buy cars, and I really haven't sussed it out. It, it, it's it just doesn't seem to make any sense at all. I think sometimes excitement just takes hold. It's, it's almost like some sort of mania takes hold, and I'm just like, I need to buy a car. I need to buy a car, and I'll, I'll, I will just scour eBay and Gumtree and forums for days trying to find the perfect car and then pick something completely unsuitable. <laughs> Actually, the Honda is pretty good at doing what I want out of a car. It, it, it's a good wafty car, but it, it doesn't handle at all, so it's not much fun to drive around here. Mm. Yeah, but it, it's fairly chance. close to meeting my requirements. So do, does a car for you just have to be interesting? Is that the... Yes, I think it does have to be interesting. And um, the de- definition of interesting is quite difficult to pin down, perhaps. But, yeah, it's only got to be something that I look at and go, oh, yeah, it, it's just, it stands out. So, so uh, I, interesting and uh, different. Hmm. Yes, it must be something that you can spot in a car park and go, oh, yeah, I can guess who that probably belongs to. <laughs> So, so, so boring and mun- mundane. Don't do it at the moment. Once those boring and mundane cars are a bit older, then they become interesting. So, Nissan Bluebird. Um, yeah, I think it's four years since I owned a very early T12 Bluebird, which was one built in Japan mm. before they started building them up at Sunderland. And it was a lovely car, but if anything, it was a bit too lovely for me. And you think this was a car that was just a dull minicab favourite, but. Yeah. By the time I owned it, it really stood out in a car park because of the styling, because of the pantograph rear wiper, which was a major plus point for me. Mm-hmm. And I think I only sold that car really because it had done 36,000 miles. It was really solid and original. And it's just like, problem is I use cars. I don't have anywhere to store really nice cars. 
So I, I didn't want to be the one who destroyed it through daily use. Yeah. So I sold it for 360 quid, not knowing that I'll be editing Retro Japanese magazine a few years down the line. <laughs> there we go. That, 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 that is a definite dream barn car. If I had the dream barn, that car would still be in it. I would not have sold it. Okay. Okay. Well, talking of um, editing, mm-hmm. when when you uh, edit, what do you think makes a good editor? What do you what are you trying to um, what are you trying to do as the editor? Um, well, p- primarily just checking the grammars there, and um, worryingly, it isn't always. So some some features need more work than others. But it's, it's all about getting the flow right and making sure that it covers as many bases as possible. Um, I, I try not to over-edit work because obviously you run the risk of the feature suddenly sounding like it's your voice rather than the writer's voice. Mm-hmm. So it's all about just trying to sharpen it down, make sure the flows are, make sure sections aren't getting too long. It's a difficult thing about us doing this live discussion now is, I, I guess, in the real world, they'd probably take this and edit it down to half an hour. But we're sort of just sort of mucking along um, as best we can. And mm. I, I guess that sort of highlights what it is. You know, we, we have the occasional difficult pause here and in, in writing terms, you can get that. So yeah. it, it's all about just trying to improve the flow of it. And do do you find editing easy? Uh, I wouldn't say easy. I find it quite stressful. But the, the thing is, I'm I'm trying to turn it into something I want to read. I, I'm an enthusiastic reader of magazine features, mm. so I, I kind of know what it should be doing. So it's just trying to tweak it. I mean, I'm I'm very fortunate with some of my writers that their stuff comes in, and you have to do very little to it at all. Okay. Yeah, that would make it very helpful. <laughs> yes, yes. In those two weeks, get into publishing. Yeah, yes. Some are better than others, but that's the way of these things. So, do you have to do lots of haranguing and reminding people, "I need your work, I need your work," or uh, are you lucky in that in that way that that doesn't need to happen? Yeah, it, it doesn't seem to happen. People are, seem pretty good. I mean, it's the good thing you're not going to make it as a writer if you can't meet the deadline. Mm. So before I became an actual paid writer, I, I would write features for the 2CV Club newsletter, which gets you into the habit of writing to a deadline and being short and concise. And it was a very important grounding. So I think to anyone who aspires to be a writer, club newsletters, the editors are invariably struggling for content. Mm. So they, they will welcome you wanting to put words together. And it's a really good experience especially if you get a regular column and then you have to write something every month and it's, it's really useful to go through that and try and think well what am i going to say next month and what am i going to do this time yeah and i suppose it, it would be um different to having your own blog because there's somebody else checking the work and yes tweaking it mm. But, yeah, that was very useful. I spent a couple of years, I think, writing for the club magazine. Um, you're still involved with the 2CV club, aren't you? Um, I'm, I'm not involved that much anymore. Obviously, I still go to the meetings. Um, but ha- having done a few years on committee, me and my wife, um, we've kind of taken a step back now. It was all part of the moving east and getting away – sorry, moving west and getting away from it all. Mm. 
But you um, you attend the uh, you're at the NEC. I've I've seen you. I've met you at the NEC and stuff. And you go you're on the stands and yeah, things, aren't you? Yeah. To, to yeah. be honest, I, I just love that. I I, I go along to the NEC um, primarily for media reasons. I'm I'm there to sort of find new stories and features for the various magazines. Um, but I don't do that solidly. I will always take time out to go and stand on the club stand and just talk to people because yeah. I just find that really nice to share the enthusiasm. Yeah, I mean, you know, I the amount that. of people now who come up to you and go, "Oh, yeah, I had one of these," and you know, it's changed so much over the past ten years when people have just walked past and almost sneer and laugh at the silly two CVs. Well, yeah, there was there was a time that they were seen as the vehicle of choice for a certain demographic. Yes, um, but I think um, I think things have changed. I think things have changed in a lot of cars that people perhaps sneered at previously yeah yeah definitely because um, you, you see them uh, you know there's obviously in this country there's a big love for british leyland cars mm. and that was more out of uh i always felt it was more out of um british bloody mindedness as opposed to actual yeah, true yeah. love <laughs> yeah yeah there's a certain amount in in there where the, the products perhaps weren't as good as they could have been but the enthusiasts don't care. No. And I think that's changed people. now because people are, you know, embracing the the flaws and the foibles, and that's part of the charm. And I think that's yes. what it is with with classic cars: is they aren't a uh, a sterile box. There no. are things you have. There are compromises you have to make in which to drive one, own one, fix one, uh, yes. and that's part of the whole fun and experience of it all indeed and, and now we get to um, the reason why i cannot stand top gear or couldn't when it was still hosted by clarkson and co it was all the stuff around marinas it's just mm. like no no this just isn't fair this is bullying effectively you're laughing at people because they've decided that actually we want to take an interest in these cars when yeah. they started buying up cars just to destroy them with pianos, you're like, well, no, that that's it. I I, I quit watching Top Gear at that point and said, this isn't the show for me anymore. It's yeah. sending out completely the wrong messages. Yeah. And it, it seemed a little bit, it, it seems a little bit at odds, particularly with some of their earlier challenges of, can we, you know, can we take these cheap cars across Africa? Yeah. Type ones, yeah. and you you sort of go well. You see, there you are celebrating a thirty year old, forty year old car. I was thinking of the Botswana one particularly. I mean, I know they did mm -hmm. uh, go at them with um, tools in the end, but you sort of they've they've got a very old car, and they're showing that they are capable um, capable vehicles in, yeah, in but... what you would presume is not a. Thing. And then, and then, as you say, they go and uh, deliberately destroy other vehicles. Yeah, because because they've decided these cars are unworthy, so you can do what you like. And the problem is, other people who aren't car people but watch Togia think, oh well, that's acceptable then. Mm. So it just encourages people to you know, destroy old cars. There was a Citroen XM in Coventry, I think it was last week. Um, just destroyed and burnt out. And there's that sort of mindless mentality of ha, 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 
Yeah, it's just that mentality of it's a cheap old car, it's rubbish, we can just smash it up and have a giggle with it. And you're just like, well, no, that's someone's pride and joy. Just because it isn't a good car, in inverted commas, doesn't mean someone doesn't love it. Yeah, and certainly that person will have spent a lot of money keeping it on the road in the condition that it was. Um, Indeed. And, you know, they're never going to get that back. Uh, Forgetting the emotional ties to it, they'll never get that money back in the insurance. Mm. I mean, I I had a similar issue with a when my S60 got written off outside my house. Um, Yeah. You know, I put a lot of money in keeping that going, keeping it nice, and it was... you know, it was a 2001 car, and it, you know, obviously nowhere near as old as the XM. But I'd spent a lot of money making sure that everything worked and it was using the right parts and all that, and then it got written off, and you get buttons at the end of the day. Yeah, um, yeah. Whereas if, if it's, if you know, it's so worth under a grand, then frankly, there's no point even um, going through the insurance, and that's the point where you start thinking, well, great, I've, I've just lost that huge sum of money. You know, I'd be better off with a more expensive car, which is worth more, because at least I could get a decent insurance payout from it but yeah that's not how I do things no no that's that's clear it's clear you you don't want anything that easy for starters no no, no. <laughs> I have much more fun buying a car for under a grand and then driving as far as I can in it so um I know you you say you do the uh the editing of the retro Japanese and the the Jag mag mm. um do you enjoy that yes I know it very- pays the bills but do you enjoy it yeah, yeah. It, it, I mean, it, it's been the saviour, really, because it's, it's a good, steady work, and it is massively enjoyable. It is hard work, because obviously we decided to move all the way to mid-Wales in the middle of nowhere, so to go and find cars to feature means I'm now on the road an awful lot, and invariably it's trips away for several days just because of the distance. Mm. But that's my fault for moving to somewhere so lovely. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the quite. actual work of itself, I mean, it can be monumentally stressful. I'm, I'm currently in the stage with the next issue of Retro Japanese. I've got a couple of weeks till deadline, and I'm looking at what needs to happen for that deadline. And this is the stage where I'm going, oh, no, there is so much to do. But I, I always get there. Do you uh, – have you um, – sorry, this, this is going to sound quite um technical bit here. Do you set yourself up with a – a, a certain process and you work through that process in, in order not to be, not to feel overwhelmed and. No, maybe or... I should, maybe that would help. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I've never been particularly good at planning. I, I just tend to do, you know, it's the same as applies to the writing. I don't, I know, I know some writers who will plan out what they're going to talk about here. And they might even start with notes and then build up around the notes and create this feature and almost craft it like a sculpture takes a block of rock and somehow makes it into a figure of a human. But my approach is just to throw my fingers at the keyboard and see what happens. And thankfully I seem to be quite good at writing to length as well. So I'll, I'll look at the word count and go, Oh yeah, that'll do. Perfect. A nice handy skill to have then, that. Yeah. A talent, yes, perhaps. Yeah. Maybe not skill, but talent. Mm, yeah, I don't, if, don't if, if you do it without planning. <laughs> so, um, with the magazines, uh, has there been... Uh, have you come across anything that you weren't expecting? Have you... Have you found something out that, and from the end of that, you've gone, I, I had no idea that that was the case until I oh, yeah. 
until I've read this piece or done this article. Yeah, I I mean, I I thought I knew a fair bit about Japanese cars, but jumping behind the um, editorial wheel of retro Japanese, I quickly had to realise that I know so little about that world, and that makes it massively enjoyable. Because you think, you know, I spent probably the past nine years writing buyer's guides on MGBs and all all the -the run-of-the-mill stuff, and Mm. you start getting to the stage, well, I cannot think of new ways to describe corrosion. So suddenly (laughs) delving into the history of the Nissan Skyline, right back to the Prince Skyline era, has been absolutely fascinating. I've thoroughly enjoyed that. And I presume you, you, well, I mean, you just said it there, that it's it's opened up a a different world. Yeah, Um, yeah. I mean, it's quite scary at times because you think, well, yeah, have I really got the knowledge to pull this off? Because you're... I am writing a magazine targeted at people who really know their their stuff. But that's all part of the challenge to me. Mm. What makes you – I suppose it would help encourage you to make sure you are putting out the best stuff you can then. Yeah, yeah. Because the audience is very demanding in a niche. Mile and audience. research and – yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, it's challenging stuff, but it's the challenge that makes it enjoyable. Oh, excellent. Um. Right, I want to move on to the uh, quickfire questions that I round out our chat uh, with. Now, the idea is behind these is I will ask you the question, you will provide your answer, and I will move on to the next question. And I'm not supposed to talk on these questions. This is just to get a feeling of where you come. I'm saying that more to myself because I have every week failed miserably at this. So I'm going to try very hard, but I can't promise. So I'll start with with the first one, which is what currently excites you about the motoring world? Uh, That one's quite easy. Uh, Battery electric vehicles. I I think it's a fascinating technology. I love the fact it now actually works. I love the fact there are people converting older cars. So one of my recent videos was a 1965 Volkswagen Beetle that's been converted to electric. Uh, I love the driving experience. I love the technology, which is strange because I thought I was a technophobe. Um, And I'm excited about that in a way. I'm just not about hybrids or hydrogen. Those two, I think, aren't the way to go. Maybe one day we can explore the reasons why, but Pure battery electric vehicles. I love the simplicity and I love the driving experience. Okay, then. So what currently worries you about the motoring world? Um, Potential restrictions on use of older vehicles. And when we haven't got that much tangible stuff, I mean, there are sort of things like the ban on older vehicles in Paris that have been discussed and potentially doing the same in London during the working week. It's a concern that there could be restrictions on the use of the vehicles I dearly love. And one day, if, if, if hydrogen and battery vehicles are our future, then surely the petrol and diesel supplies are going to dwindle, and that could be an issue. You know, older vehicles, we've already had to cope with the loss of four-star, and we seem to have coped with that one all right, but increasing amounts of ethanol in fuel, uh, the potential loss of that sort of fuel supply altogether, definitely worrying. Okay. Um, what has been your favourite car to drive and why was that? Yeah, I was lying in bed thinking about this question this morning and um, I'm not sure I'm any closer to being able to pick just one car. <laughs> I, it, it's kind of the question I've always disliked. I, I can remember as a 10-year-old being asked what my favourite car was and just going, uh, I don't know, they're all great. But I, I, I guess I should say the Citroen 2CV really because 
it's the one car that has really got its claws into me. And a lot of that is down to the driving experience, the way they lean in the bends, the way the suspension works so well and so unlike any other car. Um, they're huge fun to drive. Okay, that's a good answer. I like that answer. Uh, what's been your least favourite car to drive and why was that? Um, I'm going to go back to earlier this year when I drove a Honda NSX dream car. Woo! Um, but it had an automatic gearbox. And it was the worst automatic gearbox I've ever encountered. And to be behind the wheel of this halo car, that was meant to be so, so wonderful, and to be hampered by the gearbox and, and the rather firm suspension, which is I, can't, I guess is kind of necessary in a supercar, um, after doing 160 miles in a, in a day, I, I felt like quite a broken man, and I was glad to get back into my Citroen XM. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that was not a good experience. Oh, no, that's how disappointing. Um, okay, you're probably going to struggle with this one, possibly. Um, but what car would you like to own next? Yeah, yeah, you're right. I might well be struggling with that one. Who knows what I might end up with next. I, cur- currently, I, I really fancy a V6 of some sort. Mm-hmm. Or an Ami six. Okay. One of the two. <laughs> uh, it's going to be a while before I can afford an Ami six. I have a dream of going to France and buying one over there and driving it home, uh, but that's going to require budget. I simply don't have at the moment. Whereas I, I reckon something with a V six engine under a grand that sounds pretty easy to achieve. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll I'll keep my eyes peeled on your your Twitter stream for when that happens then. Yeah, um, when I inevitably get a three cylinder diesel or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What is your favourite road to drive on? Uh, again, that's that's not particularly easy. Living in Wales, I'm spoiled for choice around here. I do enjoy the Ellen Valley um, mountain road, which runs between Ryder and um, uh, Comerstworth up in the um, Welsh hills. Um, it, it's a fantastic road. You just have to watch out for sheep, um, ramblers, uh, tractors. Uh, it, it undulates and really tests the car um, very much. It's a, a fine test of suspension. And the 2CV is one of the best cars to drive along now, better than the XM. Ooh. So many crests, it catches out the hydro-pneumatic suspension. Ah, oh, okay. Whereas the 2CV just floats over it all. I see. Ah, okay. All right, then. What is the most pointless optional extra you've had the misfortune to experience? Yeah, th- this was a difficult one, but I think I'm going to go for what... I'm not sure if it counts as an optional extra, but automatic headlamps, I think, are one of the stupidest um, things that ever fitted to a car. Um I mean, if you can't see that you need to put your lights on, then frankly, you shouldn't be driving. And the problem with automatic lights is people get out of the habit of checking whether they need to put their lights on. And these automatic headlamps don't seem to see fog or mist or drizzle. Mm. So you end up with loads of people driving around thinking, oh, my car will put its lights on. um, And it doesn't. So then you need extra insulation. So let's have daytime running lights because we're fed up with people driving around without their lights on. You're like, that's because the car has automatic headlamps. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we are pandering to the lowest common denominator. Mm. That sort of. I mean, I I like a lot of uh, the safety features that are available. Yeah. I think that's pandering to lowest common denominator and people not taking responsibility. Indeed. Automatic wipers, I live in Wales, we get 
you can have 20 different types of rain in, in the space of a mile. So automatic <laughs> headlamps, good automatic, sorry, automatic wipers, they work really well. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Otherwise, otherwise um, you, wipe out, you, you wear out your wiper switch, changing the settings every five seconds. Quite, yes. Yeah. I, I do that when I visit my parents in North Wales. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, after speaking to you, who do you think I should talk to next? Well, I know you've been making overtures towards Gavin Braithwaite-Smith, um, and I think if you could get hold of him, I think he'd be a very interesting person to talk to. Another one might be um, Balloonfish on um, Twitter. That's Jack Grover, and he probably won't for- uh, forgive me for saying this, but I, I think he's a very interesting person as well. He um, was um, working on Classic Car Buyer, um, so we were sort of colleagues there, albeit I was a freelancer. Uh, he's now um, more involved in the editing of Classics Monthly and Classic Car Mart. Okay. And I, what, what I love about him is, again, he tends to write in um, a style which is not quite befitting his um, l- l- small number of years. He, he he writes in a very old style, and I hope he doesn't mind me saying that, a very interesting style. Okay, well, I will... Add Jack to the list, and negotiations are ongoing with uh, Major Gav. Yeah, um, he's a busy man. Yeah, he's a busy man. Uh, he's he's a busy man, and we are trying to see if we can find a suitable time in which his people and my people talk, as in me and him mm-hmm. talk, and uh, <laughs> we can get this sorted out. Um, yeah, I, I okay, that's great. I mean that that is. That's one of my favourite questions, actually. And one of my favourite things about this podcast is I'm getting to know about other people I didn't perhaps mm. know about or pay attention to, and I should be. Uh, yeah. And I think that's that's brilliant. And I think the part, the part of the reason for this podcast is to let people know of people I find interesting and say, no, yeah, listen to this, this person here and the, the talk. I've met them. They're really interesting. Follow them on Twitter or follow their website. Come on, this is the sort of stuff we would like, and we mm-hmm. want more of this. We want more diversity in there. I mean, there's there's plenty of room. I think we've, you know, we, I think we've really um, established that in this chat. Is there's plenty of room for the the burning tires people who like that, and then there's plenty of room for the people who like more niche stuff. Mm-hmm. The internet is such a vast environment that we can all we can all get along together. No, but <laughs> there, there is room for us, and there are many people who like that wide spectrum of stuff. Mm. You know, we're not yeah. just, you know, it must it must do a burnout in 0 to 60 in half a second, or yeah, I must only be interested. When I'm writing and editing um, for Retro Japanese and Classic Jaguar, I'm trying to make them appeal to people who aren't just interested in those things. So... My dream is that someone who likes Allegro's can pick up a copy of Retro Japanese and go, that was really interesting. Mm. I don't like those cars, but that was still really interesting. That's kind of the dream. So with hunting down niches, I don't think it's necessarily the best idea to really target the niche people who enjoy it. Try and give it a wider appeal. Try and get people to explore stuff they don't normally do. Yeah. In the classic car world, people can get a bit too blinkered sometimes. I think yeah, it's good, yeah. good, good to look at things that might not necessarily interest you. Well, that's why I quite like um, the Coventry um, Motor Show. Is because they mm. d- they don't have here's the Allegro section, here's the TR4 section. It's everybody mixed in together. 
So people yeah, that perhaps go, oh, I quite, yes, sorry, Motorfest. Yeah. Um, I quite like M3s. Oh, but hang on, here's a TR7 next to it. That's interesting. I've never really paid attention to that before. Mm-hmm. And just by the nature of the way it's set up, you you have to see these things. And that hopefully yes. sparks, sparks more interest. Yeah, I mean, look at the truck racing they had last year. Um, I'm guessing most of the people there probably didn't even know truck racing really existed. But it was so fantastic to watch those trucks hooning it about. I'm sure a lot of people went away and said, I'm going to go and watch a truck race now. So it's it's all about embracing stuff that isn't necessarily in your comfort zone. Yes. But I will just add, my 2CV should be at Coventry Motorfest next year. So hopefully I'll be doing some cornering on the door handles for everyone's amusement. Excellent. Well, um, I'm hoping that uh, the Motion Podcast can be there again. Uh, and if it does, I will hunt you out and say mm. hello. Excellent. And, I look uh, forward to get, it. Get to see the CV, the two CV up close. Yes. So, um, okay. What's the uh, best way for people to follow you? Follow the two CV project. What would be the uh, best way? Is probably to head to hubnut.org. Um, or you can hunt out the Hubnut channel on YouTube. Okay. I will put links to follow, those in Follow, the follow me as Dolly Wobbler on Twitter. Yes. I will have a link to that as well. So, um, well, thank you very much for coming on, Ian. I've had a, a, a great time. Um, there, should, there, just isn't enough, there isn't enough hours in the day uh, to go through your full history of cars. Which no, is, sadly not. Which was something I wasn't expecting. I knew you'd had a lot, but I didn't know it was that many. So that, that's, yeah. I doff my cap to you for that <laughs> commitment. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly something. I'm not sure commitment is the right word. but <laughs> Or maybe you need to be committed. Yes. <laughs> Well, thanks once again for coming on. Uh, Really appreciate it, and I've had a great time. Yeah, thank you very much. Good speaking to you. Okay, cheers, bye. Ta-da. Thanks once again to Ian for coming on Rearview and chatting to me. I hope you found that as fascinating as I did. If you want to suggest someone who you think we should talk to on this show, please do get in touch. If you use the hashtag RearviewPod, we'll be guaranteed to see us in Motoring Podcast Towers. To get in touch with me directly, search for Crack Windscreen on Twitter, and that's where you'll find me. And if you'd like to keep up to date with motoring news and opinions, go try out the sister show, which is the Motoring Podcast. I'd like to thank you for listening, and if you could go and leave a rating and review, preferably on iTunes, that would be brilliant. It makes a difference to this show because it helps people, other people see it. So until next time, that was Ian Seabrook, I've been Andrew Clues, and safe motoring. <laughs>